0: is a spoonful of medicine, topping up your pediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. Welcome back to part two in our inflammatory bowel disease episode. We're joined again by the amazing, dog-loving Dr. Flick to look at Crohn's disease this time, the other type of IBD. Hey, Flick, welcome. Thanks, Nim. Thanks for having me back. Ready to go? Sure am. Let's do it. Okay Flick, so before we get into the nuts and bolts of Crohn's disease, let's start with what exactly
1: is Crohn's disease? So Crohn's disease is one of the two um, disorders of inflammatory bowel disease. Crohn's disease is characterized by transmural inflammation and it can involve any portion of the luminal gastrointestinal tract. So that goes from the oral cavity all the way down to the perianal area. And there's different pattern distributions of Crohn's disease as well. The reason why Crohn's disease is important in paediatrics is that 10% of Crohn's patients are getting diagnosed before their 17th birthdays, and the incidence of this has been increasing worldwide. At the moment, the current range is 2.5 to 11.4 per 100,000. So it's quite reasonable that we would be expected to see patients with Crohn's disease during our clinical time. And I know that for myself, I've definitely seen patients at the hospital with Crohn's disease, and I'm sure that you have too.
0: Yeah, I certainly have seen kids with Crohn's disease. And in fact, I've done a gastro-rotation. It's also really important because paediatric onset Crohn's disease is more likely to have a genetic component. So you may have multiple siblings that have Crohn's disease or parents that have Crohn's disease and then their kids get diagnosed. But also childhood Crohn's disease and adolescent Crohn's disease often tends to be a far more severe or clinically significant disease comparatively to the adult type. So you may see more fistulizing disease, more extensive disease as well. And also Crohn's disease in kids can affect growth, puberty, school, functioning and all that sort of stuff, which is really big for our demographic.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's also part of the reason that we need to suspect Crohn's is that the classic triad that we learn about in medical school of abdominal pain, diarrhea and weight loss might not actually be the presenting complaint for children. And one of the statistics shows that one in four children actually present with non-specific symptoms. So that's things like growth failure, delayed puberty, anemia or lethargy, which are all really common clinical presentations, particularly just to a normal Gen P's clinic.
0: We just mentioned that paediatric Crohn's disease can be linked to genetic problems and often in exams they do like to ask genes. So what sort of genetic factors do we know or are often asked about? So
1: some of the more common gene mutations that have been associated with small bowel Crohn's disease includes NOD2, the ATG16L1 gene, the IL23R and the IRGM gene mutation. For very early onset Crohn's disease, you're more likely to have a monogenic form of IBD and this can include mutations in the gene receptor for IL-10. But there's over 250 susceptible genes that have been identified that can affect Crohn's disease. And
0: it's also important to know that often whilst we have all these genetic precursors and links, The majority of Crohn's disease cases that we will see in our clinics are ones that we sort of notice that they may run in families, but we may not find a distinct genotype. Yeah, definitely. Felicity, now there are obviously risk factors for many diseases, and that's a big thing that we consider in our history. In terms of Crohn's disease, what are the risk factors that may be at play and how do they differ or how do they compare to the ones in ulcerative
1: colitis? So the risk factors are actually more commonly that we're seeing children with Crohn's in developed countries and in particular, Immigrants who then come to a developed country tend to be more at risk and then we're not too sure what the reason for that is. We're suspecting that it could be related to the gut microbiota and of course the hygiene hypothesis that we spoke about in the last episode. are um, More relevant for our adult colleagues, smoking and anti-inflammatory medication can again be a risk factor. And I guess smoking is one of the differences as it is a protective factor for UC but the risks of smoking far outweigh any benefits of that. Um, And especially in paediatrics, we will never recommend smoking.
0: Never recommend smoking in any capacity. (laughs) And also a high-fat diet, and that's, like you said, a potential reason for why different demographics that then have a more westernised or globalisation happening can be at risk. And that is interesting because the fact that it may not be completely genetic – It may not be completely lifestyle, but a combination of the two, which is sort of a predominant feature in a lot of these auto-inflammatory diseases.
1: Yeah, and hopefully as we get more research, that means that we can look at changing things and changing the way that we're eating and sourcing more sustainable foods and things so that we help prevent this from happening to the children of the future.
0: And it's also really cool that eventually at least a potential for prevention, but also optimising of general health is your diet and your lifestyle, which is something that is not invasive. It's not a medication. It's something that can be done, but actually have pretty wide reaching implications, both for the individual as well as for a society and community as a whole. So Nam,
1: did you want to walk us through the pathophys of Crohn's disease?
0: Well, Like you see, we don't know the specifics of the pathophysiology and the evidence is still evolving and our understanding of Crohn's disease is still evolving. Nonetheless, there's a strong link between environmental and genetic factors, like we just spoke about, that drive the development of Crohn's disease. There's also, interestingly, increasing evidence about the GI microbiome and how that may play a role in both evolution of the disease, but also in how we treat it, which we'll talk about in a moment. The T-cell in autoimmune response and mediated uh, inflammation, which is predominantly Th1 and Th17 dysregulation, really underpins Crohn's disease. And ultimately, you get this transmural inflammation of the GI tract that can be anywhere from the mouth down to the anus. We talk a lot about the bowel inflammation in Crohn's disease. Can you walk us through, Felicity, how does the bowel inflammation in Crohn's disease differ from the bowel inflammation
1: that we see in ulcerative colitis? So in ulcerative colitis, it's a continuous inflammation, whereas in Crohn's disease, skip lesions are really common. Most patients have small bowel involvement, especially around the terminal ileum, but this might not be there at presentation. Lesions within the colon are really common, and so is perianal disease, but the management of perianal disease specifically is different to how we manage Crohn's disease in the rest of the GI tract. It's important that we also remember to look in the mouth as oral involvement with mouth ulcers are also really common. That really links us
0: into the clinical presentation of Crohn's disease, which does have a differing picture than ulcerative colitis. And if we remember, UC is really that angry inflammation with bloody stools.
1: Crohn's disease, not so much. So the classic presentation is that abdo pain, some diarrhea, which may or may not have frank blood in it, and also weight loss. And Felicity, why do we see weight loss? So there's lots of reasons that we see weight loss. Part of it is that it affects all of the gut, so that includes where we're absorbing our vitamins and nutrients, then also, I guess, just the pain from having the Crohn's disease, and also the fact that, you know, it's an inflammatory disorder, so our body's using more calories as well with all of that.
0: And you talked about abdominal pain, and
1: often the ileum can be affected. How does that present? So this is tricky because it presents in the right lower quadrant, which typically we associate with appendicitis. So it's one of those things that we do just have to have in the back of our mind when we're seeing these patients in ED. And
0: can you have Crohn's disease presenting without blood in the stools? Definitely.
1: And you can also have it presenting without diarrhoea or abdo pain. Um, And that's why it's really important we think about our non-specific symptoms. So the growth failure, delayed puberty, anemia, lethargy, or just decreased oral intake.
0: You mentioned before that about perianal disease and it's worthwhile mentioning that perianal disease can also be another quite common presentation of Crohn's disease and it's associated with a degree of worse prognosis. And so that means if you have a child with a perianal abscess, perianal fistula, that clearly needs to be managed. But also we need to think, is there an underlying disease at play that is,
1: this is a manifestation? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, the Kids that were saying in ED in clinic with like diarrhea or constipation, which is really common, it's always really important to remember to have a look at that perianal region. It doesn't take long, and it's just something that we should consider because, like you said, it's a really important marker for Crohn's disease and IBD. What
0: are some of the other ways Crohn's disease can present the first time that you see someone with
1: Crohn's? So, some of these words are a bit of a tongue twister. Um, and these are our extra-intestinal manifestations of the disease, which again can be associated with a worse prognosis. So that's things that affect our eyes, like uveitis, episcleritis, interstitial lung disease, moving further along down to the belly with the primary sclerosing cholangitis. Um, and then similar to ulcerative colitis, we've got the seronegative spondyloarthropathies, like spondylitis, or the peripheral arthropathies. And then there's also things, things like erythema nodosum, pyoderma gangrenosum. Further along the track, you can even have osteoporosis due to impaired nutrient absorption.
0: Another way that you can also have Crohn's disease present is growth failure and pubertal delay. As a kind of story time, I remember being a resident in ED and a child came in with a cough. And when we looked at him, we thought, you're really quite short. And initially what he'd come in with was chest pain ended up being right upper quadrant pain, which then ended up being actually quite severe fistulizing Crohn's disease and stricturing Crohn's disease. But it really went to show that although someone may present with looking a bit short, a bit of chest pain, that can also be something in the abdomen. And you may not be thinking Crohn's disease based on that history of presenting complaint in the ED or in clinic or or, or whatnot.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that also just reinforces how important it is that we do try and get a height every time kids come to the hospital, because especially for things like growth failure, it's really helpful if you've got previous height that we can then compare it to.
0: And also asking about pubertal progression, which oftentimes you can feel like it's a bit awkward, but it's a really an important part of a holistic evaluation of a child, regardless of the presentation, really, because a delay in puberty may be a, an endocrine problem, be a sign that nutrition or growth is not happening optimally and really
1: these are two things that we want to know about. And speaking of awkward, another scenario that I've just thought of as well is a case of a teenage girl that we had who actually presented with presyncopy and weight loss. So we were worried about disordered eating and that type of scenario but actually she was having bloody diarrhea and had inflammatory bowel disease
0: so keeping an open mind with IPT is the bottom line, really. Expect the unexpected.
1: That's Pete. <laughs> so Nim, last week with ulcerative colitis, we spoke about our blood test and doing things like full blood count, CRP, liver function tests, and of course, our always amazing fecal health protection. Are these still useful in Crohn's disease?
0: The answer is yes, they are, and for a few different reasons. So we want to do a full blood count, really looking for anemia because these children with Crohn's disease may be losing blood from their bowel because they have inflammation. We can also see anemia because their duodenum can be affected, and that is where iron is absorbed. And so that can also lead to anemia. They can have iron deficiency anemia, but they can also have B12-related anemia because, again, B12 may not be absorbed. So it's super important to get that full blood count and as well as iron studies and B12 and folate levels. You may see a bit of a white cell rise as well, and that's as a product of that immune and, and inflammatory scenario being at play. You want to get liver function testing because we are going to start them on medications, but also if you have a really bad disease, you can get LFT derangements, and we want to know about that. A CRP often will not be raised in Crohn's disease. And if it is raised, you're thinking, does this child have some big abscess somewhere, collection or badness going on? And then we come to the ever amazing fecal calprotectin. Looking at the latest Espagan guidelines, and that's the European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition, try saying that 10 times. They recommend that Calprotectin can be used as a marker to assess the degree of bowel inflammation, but also handily, you can use fecal calprotectin as a marker to see if the management that you've instigated for someone with Crohn's disease is working and whether or not they are trending towards or indeed in remission. So that's really helpful. We also need to get scopes. We need to have a look at that bowel. We need to have a look at some biopsies.
1: So, Flick. What do we do then? So when we're initially evaluating IBD, we tend to do an ileocolonoscopy as well as an endoscopy with multiple biopsies. So with the colonoscopy, we can see the patchy skip lesions of the inflamed mucosa, focal ulcerations. The other term they use is that cobblestone appearance of the bowel. Um, And we also can see rectal sparing. So that also helps in differentiating Crohn's disease versus UC. And then in histology, this is where we're going to see our granulomas, which we won't see in ulcerative colitis. We can also see focal ulcerations with acute and chronic patches of full thickness inflammation, architectural distortion and neutrophil infiltration, as well as neuromuscular hyperplasia and submucosal fibrosis. Colonoscopy and endoscopy are a great way for investigating the initial diagnosis of Crohn's disease but again assessing our treatment management and looking out for that mucosal healing. Now, are there any other ways that we can look at the bowel?
0: Interestingly, our helpful friends at Aspigen they also say that in patients with luminal Crohn's disease, assessment of transmural involvement can also be done with bowel ultrasound or MRI imaging. And that can also be used as a marker of treatment response. This is really helpful because we're talking about how our GI tract especially that small intestine can be involved and we can't see a small intestine with a scope you can get into the terminal ileum but that's about it and the capsule endoscopies aren't all that readily available and they're quite expensive ultrasounds allow us to have a look at what that small bowel is doing MRIs allow us the same so it's really really helpful and they can be used quite a bit so yes ultrasounds MRIs Now that we understand how common it is, what Crohn's disease is, and how it looks like clinically and also biochemically, how do we treat it? What are our priorities
1: when we find a child with Crohn's disease? So our priorities for the treatment of Crohn's disease is symptom relief, optimising our growth and nutrition, avoiding complications, especially perforations and fistulas, improving quality of life, and minimising the toxicity of the medications that we're using. When we're looking at these priorities, it's important to remember that 70 to 80 percent of patients with Crohn's disease who have ulceration on endoscopy have no symptoms. And the ASPEN guidelines actually says that for patients with luminal Crohn's disease, clinical scores alone, like the Crohn's Activity Index, don't adequately reflect mucosal healing and therefore aren't that helpful. The way that we can look at the treatment of Crohn's disease can depend on either a rapid step-up approach. Or we can use a top-down approach where we start off with treatment with lots of agents and then work our way down. Nim, to induce remission, what would be the first step that we would do? So in children with active luminal Crohn's
0: disease, our go-to at the start of treatment to induce remission is dietary therapy. And this involves EEN, which stands for Exclusive Integral Nutrition. That's really interesting because it differs from ulcerative colitis where we go to immunoactive agents, steroids, etc., as first line. In Crohn's disease, that's not the case. EN actually involves the use of a complete liquid formula as the sole source of food for six to eight weeks. So this is a long time and we really need to consider that for these children because that's rough on anyone, let alone a child. Several meta-analyses have actually compared the efficacy of EEN versus steroid therapy in those with paediatric Crohn's, and it concluded that there was no statistical difference in the clinical remission. So we can avoid steroid-related
1: complications and still get a really good outcome by just using nutrition. So Nim, I know that I would really struggle to have just formula for six to eight weeks. What is the next option for those children who find it hard to tolerate? If they're finding it hard
0: to tolerate, sometimes they may need a nasogastric tube to feed and that can be considered especially to overcome that aversion to the formula because the taste may not be great or if they're not achieving the required amounts every day for the formula. There are also options for food-based diets that emulate or sort of try to get close to EEN That can be used if EEN itself is just a no-go zone but the disease is improving for a child.
1: And then what happens if the EEN is still poorly tolerated or it's actually ineffective?
0: When EEN is not an option, we can then look at steroids to induce remission because as we said earlier, studies have shown that they're fairly comparable in terms of how successful they can be at inducing that resolution or remission of disease.
1: And then what happens for those poor patients who are really unlucky and, you know, EN doesn't work, steroids doesn't work, what do we do then? Well,
0: in these cases, our third line option, really in those complicated situations, can be anti-TNF therapy that can be used to induce remission. The agents that we can use include things like infliximab and adalimumab. So Felicity, we talk a lot about trying to induce remission, get these children into a space where their bowel is not so angry. But once we do that, how do we
1: make sure that they stay there? So to help with our maintenance therapy and help with that mucosal healing, um, our next options are either methotrexate or our 6-MP, so that's a 6 macaptopurine, or azathioprine. And if those agents aren't successful, then the next option would be going back to our anti. TNF agents, are immunomodulators, but currently in Australia, these are only approved if there's either acute severe colitis or if there's been failure of an adequate trial of conventional therapies.
0: We've also been talking a lot about perianal disease in Crohn's disease. So how does perianal disease like abscesses, fistulas, how are they managed?
1: So like any other abscess, it's really important that we get the pus out. So this is a time where we do need to make our call to our friendly surgeons to help to ask them if they can drain the abscess for us. And then after this, it's important that similar to abscesses elsewhere in the body that we use antibiotics. So we can use either metronidazole or ciprofloxacin. And then following that, to help the mucosa heal, if it still hasn't healed with the antibiotics, we can use either mecaptopurine or azathioprine. In some patients that have got really complicated or refractory perianal disease, we might need to go back to using our MABs, those are our immunomodulators like infliximab or an anti tnf agent. The main thing is to remember that we need to avoid steroids, as this can be associated with a worse prognosis for patients in this group. So we've spoken about 6-MP and azathioprine in using for management of both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Nim, would you be able to talk us through some of the ways that these medications work and their side effects? So
0: azathioprine, interestingly, is metabolised into 6-MP. 6-MP is then metabolised. It is metabolised by three different pathways. We have our xanthine oxidase pathway, our pathway through the TPMT enzyme, and then we also have our enzyme that goes into the 6 thioguanine nucleotides, which then cause bone marrow suppression. We discussed last time how it's really important to get a TPMT level because people who metabolize through this TPMT pathway a lot basically shunt away the 6-MP into a pathway that is not actually immunoactive and so they may need high doses. Conversely, if you have someone that doesn't have much TPMT and is not taking any of the medication through the other pathway, most of it will be going down suppressing the bone marrow, so they have higher toxicities. We monitor 6MP and we monitor the levels of all the byproducts. It's really important to know that the main complications of 6MP really are that bone marrow suppression that we've talked about multiple times. Also, we can cause pancreatitis. And interestingly, that pancreatitis is not dose dependent. So if you reduce the dose, it doesn't decrease the risk of pancreatitis. However, the degree of bone marrow suppression is related to the dose. If you reduce the dose, you reduce the amount of bone marrow suppression as well. There is another very rare but important complication that is associated with 6MP or those exposed to 6MP. Which one is that, Flick?
1: So there's an increased risk of a hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma with therapy for IBD patients, particularly the young males who are EBV-naive. So that's something really important to consider and even look at doing your EBV serology before you start these medications. Some of the other serologies that we can look at testing prior to starting immunotherapy can include things like our vaccine seroconversion. as Once you start immunotherapy, as you know, we can't give live vaccines. So it's important that we look at our hep B, hep C as well as varicella serology. Mm, Very, very true.
0: Now that we know kind of how Crohn's disease is managed and we've talked about the various complications, what is the long-term prognosis for someone with Crohn's disease?
1: So in the long term, this condition, while it is a very difficult condition, um, it is manageable with medications and a multidisciplinary team. And these patients can go on to live a really fulfilling and healthy life. One of the things that we do need to keep in mind, especially for patients who have had Crohn's disease longer than eight years, so may not be paediatric patients anymore, but is that there is that increased risk of colorectal cancer. So it's important we still got to keep up with our endoscopies and colonoscopies to look at assessing for that. With that, it's time for a
0: recap. Crohn's disease is inflammation that is transmural within the bowel. It can happen anywhere from mouth to anus and involves skip lesions. It's a type of IBD.
1: However, it
0: can be and is distinct from ulcerative colitis.
1: At least 10% of patients are diagnosed with Crohn's disease before they're 17. And unlike in the adult population, it's more likely to be a more severe disease. We're in paediatric land and we
0: love genes. Genes that are associated with Crohn's disease include the IL-10 receptor
1: and NOD2 genes. Risk factors for Crohn's disease include being in a more developed country, possible gut microbiome risk factors as well as smoking and NSAID use. The
0: pathophysiology of Crohn's disease is not completely understood. Nonetheless, it involves a dysregulated
1: immune response with ultimately gut inflammation and transmural damage. The classic triad for Crohn's disease is abdominal pain, diarrhea and weight loss. However, one in four children present with non specific symptoms like growth failure, delayed puberty, anemia, lethargy, decreased oral intake, or extra intestinal manifestations.
0: When investigating someone that you suspect may have Crohn's disease, we get some blood tests, including a full blood count, liver function, renal function testing, looking for things like anemia and nutritional deficiencies, as well as inflammation. We also get a fecal calprotectin to look for bowel inflammation. We get endoscopies and colonoscopies, as well as can think about ultrasounds as well as MRIs to look at small bowel-related complications and involvement.
1: Treatment looks at prioritising symptom relief as well as mucosal healing. Treatment can be split up into induction therapy with EEN or corticosteroids, followed by maintenance therapy with either mecaptopurine or azathioprine. And then we have our biologic agents that we can use, such as infliximab or adalumumab. Complications
0: of Crohn's disease can include fistulising disease, stricturing disease and significant perianal disease. These may involve surgical management if quite severe.
1: Overall Crohn's disease has a good prognosis as it can occur anywhere throughout the bowel there can be a wide variety of complications and for this reason each person needs an individualised management plan. And that is Crohn's disease. Thanks Tim.
0: Thanks Flick. Bye. Bye. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, Please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure topping up your pediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode, but until then, bye.